In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Today we're starting a new sermon series, The Bible in Seven Weeks, and I'm really excited. The goal of this sermon series is to get you acquainted with the Bible and the different sections of the Bible. So what we've done is we've looked and said there are seven different sections, unique sections of the Bible, and we're going to take them and look at them week by week. The beginnings, the historical book, wisdom books, prophetical books, gospels, letters, and revelation. You don't have to understand that all right now because we're going to go through it. But what you need to know is that because they're unique styles, you might need to know something different when you're reading them. Or you might have to understand something different about why they're written. And so, at the end of this, this is why I'm excited, you should be able to orient yourself wherever you're reading. Because most of the reading we do in the Bible is out of order. You see the readings we do on Sunday are taken from different sections of these books. And I'm excited because oftentimes even I get lost. But after this, you should be able to orient yourself and be acquainted with the Bible as a whole. There's really a more important reason that we're going to take a look at the Bible in these seven sections. Because we want to understand that the Bible is about one person. The Bible is about Christ. Even though it's divided up into 66 different books, even though we have two different testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament, even though we can divide it into these seven distinct parts, the Bible is about one person, Christ. And hopefully by the end of this series, we'll be able to see that. So today, we're going to look at number one, beginnings. And the beginning books we're going to look at are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And you might be thinking, okay, Genesis is really the beginning of the Bible, and you're right. That's what Genesis means, and it starts in the beginning. But we're going to take a look at these as a whole because they're all written by one man. They're all written by Moses. And so at the end of Deuteronomy, we see Moses passing away, but he writes all of these books. And we often call them the Pentateuch, which is a fancy word you can use to impress your friends. And all it means in Greek is five books. So it's easy to remember. So if someone says Pentateuch, they're just saying these five books. But it's merely more than just one author and just one group that we often associate. It's because he was writing one story. We've divided up into five different sections, but he was highlighting one thing, God's promise. And so today, when we look at these books, we want to see that, how God makes his promise and how God fulfills that promise. And now when I was thinking about the beginnings, why we even bother to stop and take a whole Sunday to talk about the beginning, something we probably all know, I thought about this. And this, of course, is on themes of the last judgment by Kandinsky. And why did I think of this? You see, Kandinsky is an artist, and I learned about him in grade school. And my thoughts about his art haven't changed. I have no idea what to think. So he's an abstract artist, and I have no idea what this means or how he even ties this into the Last Judgment. And by show of hands, how many of you here today would want to see this as our new centerpiece in the atrium? Okay, a little bit more than I expected. <laughs> so we have a couple people, but not, not many. I don't even know quite what to think when I look at this, but... People say that this is a finished product. Some people like this and appreciate it as art. 
And I'm not quite able to understand it until I learned about it. Until my teacher explained to me what abstract art is, until I learned more about this artist and realized he was famous, and until I looked up the title and maybe what he was trying to get at, and finally that this piece was sold for over $200 million. I wouldn't have guessed that. But the more I learned about the beginnings, where this artwork came from, and what it's all about, the more I understood why people liked it, why people would pay so much money for it. You see, I couldn't understand the end, that this is artwork, until I understood the beginning, until I knew its story and maybe what the artist was trying to say. And now this happened for me back in grade school when I was learning about art, but it's probably happened to you more recently when you're come into a movie, someone's watching something, you turn something on, and you realize it's the end of the movie. How many of you would keep watching? Probably not many, unless you know the movie. You don't have any idea what's going on, and if you can figure it out, you probably have no idea why it matters. You see, you can't understand the end unless you understand the beginning. And I think the same is true with the Bible. How can we understand the end, an end that we just stopped to celebrate, and then on the cross, a new beginning in Jesus' life, unless we understand the beginning, where we came from. And that's where Genesis comes in. In the first three chapters, Moses lays out for us not only the beginning of the earth and space and time, but also our beginnings, where we all start. And so in Genesis chapter 1, he lays out the creation of the world, how God stepped into time, an eternal being, and he created everything we see around us. All the people we're sitting with, animals, land, oceans, all the heavenly bodies, he created them all. And in a very straightforward way, Moses tells us this, and it's amazing, but the amazing part to me is that everything was perfect. You see, God put Adam and Eve at the beginning of Genesis in the Garden of Eden, and it was literally a heaven on earth. Everything worked in perfect harmony with one another. Imagine getting up for work every day and knowing that your day is going to be filled with joy and you're going to get fulfillment out of everything you do. That's what they had. They had work, but everything was perfect. And then, as you may know, in Genesis chapter 3, everything is ruined. See, it's called the fall into sin. And what did we fall from? We fell from perfection. You see, I don't often think about it, but the start of Genesis is really the start of sin. The beginning of sin as we know it. In one simple act, the devil came to Adam and Eve, tempted them, and they disobeyed. And now the whole story up to this point has completely changed, right? God made this world in perfection and now that's all ruined. Their relationship with each other, their relationship with God is completely destroyed. And it's also our beginning. You see, sin is something that we can all understand. It's something that we all deal with. We might not understand perfection, but we all know what it's like to have something good. Think about any relationship you're in with your friends, your family, People you know, people at work, why do you get into a relationship? Why do you bother at all? Because it's good. It makes you happy. 
But the longer you think about that relationship, I think the more you'll see the sin that might try to divide it. The sin that's present with anybody. The things you've said, the things you've done. Maybe how someone else thinks about you, the laziness, the selfishness, the betrayal. And that sin doesn't just affect us. It doesn't just drive a wedge between you and someone else. As we see in Genesis, it separates you from God. It's destroyed that perfect relationship that we once had. You see, Genesis describes the beginnings of sin. But immediately after this tragic beginning, we also find this. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. It's cryptic at first, but what do we have here? You see, Genesis, as I mentioned, is about a promise. And God describes this enmity, this hatred between the woman's offspring and the devil's offspring. And what does that mean? But what do we know? That God says somebody will crush the devil's head. And everything that the devil is about, sin and death, will one day be destroyed. And that's where Moses, when he is writing Genesis, starts. He starts with a story about sin, but more importantly, a story about promise. And so when we look at these five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, we're going to see that story repeated. You might remember in history class learning that history is cyclical. It repeats itself. You see things over and over again. And what makes it easier for me is to look at these first five books, the Pentateuch, as repeating this story, sin and a promise. So let's jump in to Genesis. Now, if I ask you to take a second and think about your favorite Bible story, or maybe just the Bible story that you can describe the most, I would guess that most of you are thinking about some kind of story from these first five books of the Bible. See, there are a lot of familiar faces in Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus, and we see and we remember those stories because they're meaningful to us. Take a look at any children's book, and most of those stories are going to be from Genesis and Exodus. And why does that matter? You see, Moses uses these familiar faces, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses himself, and what he does is he paints that picture of sin and a promise. And we see that first in Abraham. This was our reading for today. The Lord had said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people and your father's household, to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You see, Genesis starts with creation. We learn that story of sin and promise. And then the next big character we see is Noah and the flood. And what is that a story of? The world's sin and God's promise to save. And now we see that promise expanded in one man. And another thing I don't often realize until I reread it is that the Bible could be about the entire world. There are several other nations, large nations, bigger than the nation of Israel. But at this point in time, when God gives this promise to Abraham, he focuses 
on one person. And he gives him that same promise he gave to Adam. And he says three things. I will make your name great. I will make your nation great. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And we're all familiar with Abraham's name, so God did that. We all know the nation of Israel. We see God making them great. But what does it mean all peoples will be blessed through you? He can only be pointing to one person. See, even at the time of Abraham, God is pointing us to the cross. Abraham could only influence the people around him, and then he had to die. But because of his family line, because God chose him to be that special nation, he would bring forth a Savior, someone who all people would be blessed through. You see, God gave that promise to Abraham. And what is he doing? He's beginning something. In Genesis, he's beginning a promise. A promise to Abraham that this Messiah, this person would be born. And now you think about the rest of Genesis. You have Abraham. You have Isaac, his son. And you probably know the stories about him getting married. How he had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And how Jacob tried to deceive and get the birthright and he had to flee his brother Esau. And then when he fleed, you know that Jacob had 12 sons, very famous sons. And then God renames Jacob and he calls him Israel. And that's why we get the Israelites. And one of Jacob's sons, um, Judah, is also the man who would get this promise. The promise started with Abraham and that's why we call this nation the Jews. And all of this is happening in Genesis, all those familiar stories to reinforce one thing, that God had a promise, and now he's picking a nation to keep that promise. And then we jump to Exodus. And in Exodus, we see the beginnings of a nation. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and now in Exodus, Moses gives us a gap. At the end of Genesis, we're left with 72 people, and that is God's nation, and to me, it doesn't seem quite like a nation because I have 72 people in just my extended family. But that's the start of God's promise. And in Exodus, he gives, Moses gives us a gap of 400 years, and in that 400 years, 72 grows to 2 million. And we see God blessing that nation. And we also see the beginnings of God's protection. You see, Moses introduces a very important character at the beginning of Exodus himself. Moses was the person chosen to lead that nation out of Egypt because they had a problem. They were still God's chosen people. They still had that promise, but they were all in slavery, right? And so God used Moses to get them out. And the first event you might remember is the ten plagues. God brings these ten plagues to show Egypt his power, to show his nation that he's still concerned with what they're doing. And he gives them these ten plagues. And right in the middle of that, we see a special meal the Passover meal, that has to do with the last plague where God says, I'll wipe out all the firstborn in Egypt. But to Israelites and to anyone who would listen to him, he said, I give you another promise, a promise of salvation. If you would kill this lamb and eat it with your family and spread the, door and the blood on the doorframe of your house, I'll pass over you. And so during these plagues, that are happening to Egypt, we see God save his people. He's protecting a nation. And then after that, they run into another problem. Finally, Pharaoh lets them go. And they're faced with the Red Sea. 
And the Egyptians decide they don't actually want this nation that they had as slaves to go. And so now they're stuck between an army and a Red Sea. And God uses his power to split that Red Sea and literally deliver them from the hands of an army. And all through one man, Moses. And we see in Exodus God's protection of a nation. And why does Moses bother to go through all of these stories? Because what God is protecting in that nation is a promise. And then we move to Leviticus in the second half of Exodus, and what do we see? Right after he saves this entire nation, he gives them laws. And so if I asked you right now, how many of you have read Leviticus just from start to finish, I don't know the numbers would be too high. I don't think I've ever quite done it. I usually break it up for myself. Because Leviticus is actually a code of laws. God takes the time to explain to the nation of Israel exactly how, you'll, how they are going to live with each other, exactly how they are going to worship God, and that's where the second half of Exodus comes in. God just gives a detailed account of where they're going to worship. And why does God do this? You might be catching on. He's protecting the Israelites. And what is he actually protecting his promise? You see, why do any of us have laws in the first place? We have laws from the government. We still have laws from God. We make some rules for ourselves because we realize that it makes our lives a little bit better. And why? It's because of the government. It's because of God. It's because you even realize you work in a certain way. And how do you work? Sometimes your life is filled with sin. You have tendencies to do things that just serve yourself, so we make laws for protection. And if you ever read Leviticus, maybe later on this week, you might realize that these laws are super strict and that we don't follow many of them today, but why did God give them? Why is it important to read them and understand how he felt about his nation? Because he wanted to protect them, not only from themselves, but also from the people around them. You see, it's the beginning of God's intimate protection of a special nation and why for that promise. And finally, we get to Numbers and Deuteronomy. And if you haven't read Numbers, I don't blame you because it sounds pretty boring. And it has lists, yes, of names. It has lists of numbers because the Israelites took census of themselves to see where they were at, to know that God had blessed this nation. But Numbers is actually more interesting than that. Numbers is a story of wandering. And why are they wandering? Because both of these books describe a new beginning. You see, they're wandering because God has shown them this protection. He started a nation. He's delivered them from Egypt. He's given them these laws, and he wants to give them land. And when they get to the land, they see the people living there, how powerful they all are, and maybe you know this, they say, we can't do it. They can't trust the God who just split a sea open to save them. And so what God says is, I want people who understand my promise. And so he has them wander in the book of Numbers for 40 years until a new generation is born. And that's where we see a new beginning. And what's God doing? He's protecting his promise. And Deuteronomy, you might not have read before because it means second law. Moses has this new nation with him. They're about to go into this new land at the end of Numbers, and he tells them God's law a second time. So if you've just read Leviticus, don't try to read Deuteronomy. But what is Moses doing? He understands something about these people. 
he understands that they can't possibly know where they're at. They can't possibly know why it matters that God is leading them to this new land unless they understand their beginning. And so in Deuteronomy, Moses goes through this whole account again just to emphasize the fact that God was protecting a promise. Despite their sin, despite anything that they could have done, God is protecting his promise that one day all nations would be blessed. And that is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Moses is telling us something special. He's telling us that our story, just like theirs, is a story of sin and grace. He's telling us, especially in Deuteronomy, that we can't understand the end. We can't possibly understand the cross unless we understand where we came from. And so when you're reading the Bible, especially if you start at the end or if you try to dig into these books right in the middle without understanding where you're at, it might look like this. You might be confused, you might not understand, but when you take a second to tell yourself that this is a story of sin and promise, a story how God fulfills everything he says to us, how this all is about one man, Christ, then maybe the picture gets a little more clear and you see the end. You see the promises that God has given to you and the promises he'll keep fulfilling in your life. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for giving us the words in your word. Please help us to take the time and have the patience to study them and to meditate them. And please help us to know that this whole story is about Jesus that this whole story is about how you came to show us love and how you came to restore that relationship, that perfection that we read about in just the first two chapters. And please help us to always trust your promise and that you will fulfill it and take us to be at home with you. In your son's name we pray, amen.